continue with our yogic analysis of the words and deeds teachings of Jesus as they are introduced in the Gospel of Matthew. Last time when we spoke, we entered already in the parable of the wedding, the banquet, in the chapter number 22. And now we are in that chapter, we continue with the paragraph number 15. After that tough teaching, that surprising teaching was given, you remember, with the last and the first, and which ends with the words, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Then it continues. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Basically, you can see that these people, they did not care if he was right or not, they simply wanted to trap him in words, in smart intellectual dialogue. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. They didn't go themselves, which obviously shows another perverse feature. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They simply try to pamper him, right? They start with flattery, because actually they don't think this. They are actually trying to nail him. They are trying to frame him. You aren't swayed by men, because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This uh, is a very uh, forked tongue, a very tricky question because basically they are asking Jesus to advise the rebellion. Basically this is a long, long story. Those of you who have seen the Jesus movie, you see there that problem uh, explained more in detail because the big issue of the Jews at that time was if they should obey to the Roman rulership of Judea or if they should rebel to it. And basically they are trying to get Jesus to see if Jesus would condone some military action, some forceful action. It's a way of testing him. It's a very delicate game because it says, well, if you indeed want to be our Messiah, then be our military ruler as well. If indeed you want to be Messiah, then you have to be the Messiah that we dream that you should be. Because according to our expectations, Messiah should be like this and this and support us in this and this way. Basically, these people are trying to find financial independence from the Caesar and they want to see if Jesus is on their part, is on their side or not. And if not, at least then they should frame him or whatever, telling him, okay, you say we should pay tax to Caesar then you are just a traitor, you are just a rat, you are just selling out, 
you are just preaching the cause of the Romans and the real Jews shall hate you, or if he is preaching against uh, paying the tax, then either they can sell him to the emperor and say, see, this is a man who preaches that people shall not pay tax to you, so they are ready to catch him one way or another, or at least to, to see if this man is uh, kind of ready to play ball their way, like uh, cooperating. They desperately try to find a way to catch him or to cooperate with him if they can twist him to it. So they flatter him, as you can see, and then they say, shall we pay tax or not? Obviously, this is a ridiculous question in the view of a man like Jesus, because Jesus has just been preaching a lot of times that you shall live like the birds of the sky, that you shall live like the lilies of the field, that you shall not gather treasure on earth, that you shall gather treasure in heaven, that you shall give your things to the poor and follow him, and things like this. So it's obvious that Jesus is completely uninterested in their economical discussions, if this is going to have any kind of economical result. Jesus believes that the spirituality can develop without any economical thing, and of course the fact that people complain, oh, our money are going to Rome, poor us, is just an expression of their attachment to man, to money, it's an expression of their egoism and the others. So surely Jesus cannot condone this after he gave the teachings which he gave. But moreover, he is also a bit of a clairvoyant, isn't he? And it says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He knows what the name of the game is. And then he says, He will nevertheless show them that there is a solution always. He says, Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought to him a, den a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. See, when a man like Jesus is having such a mental development, that he is also in a perpetual meditation, it's impossible to catch him, because he will always see in the infinite possibilities, he will always see a possibility which they have not prescribed before. So the answer of Jesus is very common sense, because he says, this money by which you pay tax, by whom is it made? It is the denarius? Okay, it is made by Caesar, right? Because it has the face of Caesar on it. Well, then it's not yours, is it? It had been given to you just as a loan. It actually never belongs to you truly, because look, it's the face of Caesar on it. And therefore, it's like Jesus would say, well, if you would make your own money, then you could keep it, because it's not the face of Caesar. But since you sold out and you live by those people's money, then what do you expect? In this way, actually, Jesus gives uh, an indirect solution, a quite uh, intelligent solution about the fact that people could not resort to that. They could live a parallel world, exactly as Mahatma Gandhi told to the British. If, the, if millions of Hindu people ignore you simply, they don't pay tax, they don't talk to you, they don't cooperate, they don't come to work, they just have a parallel reality of their own. They just talk with each other, change money and agricultural products, 
only with each other and they simply leave you stranded in the thin air, your government becomes a caricature because you are sitting there and doing nothing and the whole nation lives a parallel life to you. You are simply being ignored. In the same way, Jesus says, ignore the Romans and their money and live your own reality. But people, of course, are too much egoistic, too much materialistic to be able to think in that way. So actually Jesus even gives them a solution. He says, if this is your ambition, if this is your level of being, if this is what you want to be, then why don't you do it in a smart way? Why don't you just skip the money system altogether and do something else? Jesus knows where this money system is leading. And if you look at the history of the world, you know that today this money system is used as a, one of the main instruments of manipulation and oppression of the people, of holding people under control through the money. Because you don't have money and the banking system and everything else is actually doing a lot of things there. I cannot deviate now in that direction. And that is why you can see Jesus in his clairvoyance. He basically even gives them a solution on their level, but they refuse to see it. Jesus basically normally tells them, why are you attached? This is the money of Caesar. Caesar stamped them and created them. What do you care about this money? They are not yours. They don't come from you. They don't belong to your culture, civilization, to your background. Why are you attached to them? Why can't you just forget to it? So Jesus makes the definition and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. That means nobody prevents you to have your heart in the right place. Nobody prevents you to believe in God. Nobody prevents you to live divinely. And why do you fret about material things that Caesar wants his denarius back? Give to Caesar what belongs to the Caesar and don't mix up things because they shouldn't be mixed up. In this way, the vision of Jesus is very pure in here concerning the money and all the rest. He is even sneaking a very brilliant solution in giving this answer. And also, he is aware of the fact that they just try to trap him with intellectual things to throw him in one extreme or another. In this way, again, the answer is very clear. If this system belongs to Caesar and you accept to live by this system, then the money belongs to Caesar. If you are smart enough, make your own system and then Caesar will be left out. They, you simply are not going to participate in this kind of system of theirs. The same, that some same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Again, to test him, to usually to trap him. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Of course, this example is absolutely hypothetical. You don't expect to happen like this, because this woman sounds like the black widow. She simply terminated seven brothers <laughs> in a row like this. But it's an example by which they try to catch him with a stupid thing. Finally, the woman died. Now, then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her at some time or another. Basically, here the question is very realistic, and this is a question which should enlighten you on the nature of love 
attachment and relationships as well. That's one of the things which touches us directly in Tantra as well. Because people have this possessiveness. They believe that somebody belongs to them. And here these people say, if this wife belongs to this, not to mention that, of course, for these people, women are objects. They are just numbers. Uh, and as you know, the condition in those days when they are counting only the men and everything. And basically this woman, which is like a property which passes from one brother to the other, eventually to whom will she belong? It doesn't even cross their minds, first of all, that this woman might find that all seven of them are assholes and she wants to belong to none of them and wants to be something else. She doesn't have a word to say. The thing is that they have got some booty. This woman is some kind of booty and they have to share her in the end. To whom will she finally be? To the first, to the last, or what? And Jesus, who is aware of the nature of true love, who is aware of the nature of existence in the astral world, who is aware of the existence of the kingdom of heaven and this existence in bliss and in pure love, he of course surprises them again. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So basically what Jesus says here, there is no possessiveness. At a higher level, one cannot possess. This resurrection, which means the kingdom of heaven, or an exalted state of existence, Jesus is very clear. He says, you are judging like materialistic people, you don't understand the power of God. People who are in that state of consciousness are like the angels. They don't belong. Nobody belongs to anybody. It's just a bourgeois illusion that some people belong to other people. That you try to build this kind of boxes in which this woman belongs to this and that belongs to that. Basically, he says, wait a second. In the kingdom of heaven, the rules are completely different. Nobody belongs to anybody or everybody belongs to everybody or whatever you would like to put it like. That is why this is basically your painful error. You are in error because you think in a human way. You try to apply your limited human possessiveness. That is why this is a very, very good lesson for those of you who are possessive. Remember, even when you have somebody in this world, at the resurrection, as Jesus says, nobody will get married, nobody belongs to anybody, and people are like the angels in heaven. Do the angels in heaven love each other? Of course they do. The angels in heaven do have a pure love for each other. So the human beings, can they become Shivas and Parvatis, and they can become Krishnas and Radhas, and be like the angels, but they are not sharing a relationship which is possessive. There is no more belonging to somebody. And therefore, Jesus very clearly tells them, he compares the love of that level with the angelic love, with the love of angels. But about the resurrection of the dead, because he knows they do not believe in a next existence, he says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Basically, he is also showing that this condition in which somebody belongs to somebody, this hammered and nailed thing, that things are stable, that Mary belongs to John, 
and that's how it's going to be. It's dead. It's a static situation. It's like a universe without Kali. It's like a universe without time. It's like a universe without transformation. Nothing is forever. Nothing can belong. Nobody can belong forever to somebody. And therefore, this universe which they see, it's like death. It's like indeed there is no resurrection. It's like an eternal death. They have died and then Mary belonged to John for the rest of time. Wait a second. There's no death. There is life, which simply means Jesus says, times are changing, people are changing, time is flowing, circumstances, nothing is the same. A million years will pass and nothing will be the same of what it was. You have to look upon reality in a dynamic way. Things don't change, don't stay the same. That is why this utopia that somebody belongs to somebody and that you are going to make a permanent abode either here or in the astral world or wherever is another materialistic, possessive, attached, bourgeois type of idea where people are simply building this kind of egoistic models of things. That is why this, it is worth meditating. This paragraph is very beautiful from the standpoint of relationships. Because many people think, oh, if uh, Romeo and Juliet died together, then romantically they are linked together in all eternity. If the Indian women practice the ritual of sati and they jump in fire for their beloved husband, then they will be united forever. Jesus says nobody and nothing is united forever. Only the angels in heaven are united forever, but by a love which is not like the human love, by a love which is angel-like love. And therefore Jesus is dismantling all these kind of romantic things where people try to project their possessive bourgeois pattern beyond this life in eternity. It's like even the kingdom of heaven is going to be tainted by these family images, possessiveness, who belongs to who, whose clan, who's this and who's that. Jesus says, wake up people. In the kingdom of heaven it's not like this. In the kingdom of heaven you are like angels. What are you trying to plan now for possessiveness forever? Possessiveness in the kingdom of God. Wake up, you are selling the bird which you didn't catch yet. You are just speculating wildly on something which cannot be. And that is why he tells them God is the God of the living. That means remember that God is the symbol of life. Actually in Christianity uh, that was one of the ideas which Jesus brought very powerfully in this universe. Jesus always symbolizes all that he does starting with the fact that he himself raised the dead from the grave and finishing with the fact that in the end he himself resurrects and ending with statements where he says I am the life, the truth and the path and where he declares himself as being the life of the universe as God Jesus defines the nature of God as life and basically that is why they would say if you were divine as God you would be eternally alive as God. God knows no death. God is immortal. That is why spirituality is immortality. If you would be perfect like Jesus, you would never die because Jesus cannot die. There is no death for one like Jesus. Even when he allowed himself put in the grave, 
the angel of God came and turned him back to life and he is eternally alive and he left with his body and all the other things. Therefore, for the Christians, death is considered like a sign of failure. It's kind of death is no God. It is the absence of God. Here we are having a slight philosophical difference from the tantric, yogic, uh, eastern opinion, where death is a manifestation of Kali, a necessity of being dead, to be reborn, to evolve, to change. Those of you who are in the sixth month of yoga, seventh month of yoga, you know what I'm talking about because that's the theory about Kali. But uh, the yogis say, well, things, I'm sorry, not the yogis, the Christian mystics say, things are that way, because you are, alas, not perfect yet. Should you be like Jesus, then death would become unnecessary because you would be above time, above Kali, you would have reached perfection. And therefore, this is a kind of ultimate test. It's like Jesus, God, whoever you want, they always mean life, life. It's like always with Jesus, always with God, you bring life, never death. Death is the result of the absence of God, because if you would be 100% shining of Godhead, then there wouldn't be death. For such a person, there is no death. And therefore, uh, that means in spirit speaking, but still it manifests at levels which are incomprehensible. Like, you know that great masters of this mankind, they never really literally died. Some of them, they simply dematerialized, disappeared, or whatever happened, like even the great Abhinavagupta in the 10th century, he entered in a cave with 50 disciples and they all disappeared. Nobody knows if that cave was taking them to Shambhala on the other side of the earth or they simply dematerialized and translated to some other existential level or what's what. But fact is that you cannot go to Kashmir and find the bones of Abhinavagupta because there are no bones of Abhinavagupta. He never left the body. So you can say for Abhinavagupta there is no more death. This man is rainbow, is light. This man is God and therefore the divinity has reached this intensity. And that is why Christians in Christian metaphysics, they keep looking upon death as some measure of absence of divinity. It's kind of death is a temporary postponement until you will become full life, full life, the life of God. God is always the one which is life and death is a measure of our imperfection, the fact that we still need death, the fact that we still live with death, that our life is accompanied by death. And that is why this sentence, this kind of point of view, that it is God is the God of not of the dead, but of the living. I told you that wild story with Saint, um, what was his name, Sylvester, one of the Roman saints, who they made a bet if somebody could kill a bull by a word, and the black magician did kill the bull, and then Sylvester just said the name of Jesus, whispered the name of Jesus into the ear of the dead bull, and the bull came back to life, and it was alive again. This is the complete thing, that you can take life, but who can give life? Only God can give life. It's easy to take life, but it is not at all easy to give life, to create life. And therefore, in this way, uh, here the statement of Jesus is hinting at several things, but first of all wants to be a primary answer to this. 
that the Spirit of God is alive, the Kingdom of Heaven is alive, people change and trying to apply all these bourgeois patterns to the infinite is absurd because you cannot measure the infinite by some models which we use in a limited existence. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. <coughs> Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. That's another theme again. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the, this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Here, Jesus echoes the mystic Judaic tradition in a brilliant way and this is the ultimate manifestation of aparigraha or aspiration. You want a different definition of aparigraha? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Saint Peter of Damascus made a brilliant analysis of this. I don't have it here with me to quote it for you. He made a brilliant analysis because he comments on this and he says, When I heard this sentence, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, or whatever says here, he said, I remained amazed because he said, I understood what the heart is, I understood what the soul is, I understood what the mind is, that the mind thinks only of God and wishes nothing but God, that the soul is aspiring only after God, that your heart is raising against all obstacles and wishes only that. He makes a brilliant definition which is so exclusive, so total, which is kind of the perfect aspiration, like to see nothing, to hear something, nothing, to want nothing but the divine realization. Ultimately, this greatest commandment is the commandment of Aparigraha. Have aspiration and give in your lives always the first place to God and then your life is going to go the right way. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The second commandment is very much his own. It is very much a thing which does not come so much from the prophet. It comes from the Leviticus. I see here it's quoted from the book of the Leviticus. But Jesus gives to it uh, existential power. Because people would love God, but they will not love the neighbor. This is the famous symbol is made by some uh, metaphysicians, the symbol of the cross. That the vertical dimension of the cross means that the human being loves God, and the horizontal dimension of the cross means that people love each other. So there is a horizontal love, which means love your neighbor as yourself, and the vertical line, which is love God. They are not complete without each other. Somebody who loves God tremendously but doesn't love the neighbors has not understood manifestation. That person is an escapist. For him all the human beings are lies and cheats and fake and illusion and nothing. And that person just wants to reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi and to run out of this world. That's not Baba Samadhi. In Baba Samadhi you understand that the manifestation is also God and therefore the other human beings are also having the nature of God and therefore you can love other human beings 
because they are God as much as you are in a way because they are made of Atman their essence is the Supreme Self which is the nature of Shiva which is the nature of the cosmic consciousness which is the nature of God ultimately and that is why this vision that you love only God is an incomplete vision. It's the vision of the person who aims for Nirvikalpa Samadhi only and who wishes to kind of escape from this universe. The heck with everybody in this universe. It's a vision without compassion. It's a view of the universe without understanding Shakti or the manifestation. It's only Purusha not Prakriti. It's a very Vedantic way in which Prakriti is Maya, is a lie, is negligible, we don't want it. But in the complete vision, and Jesus unavoidably has this complete vision, it's impossible to love God without loving the creation, which is the horizontal love. That is why complete is to have both this, and this is the symbol of the heart, that the cross is in the heart, this is the place where you have the crossing of the vertical line which unites Mulakhara with Sahasrara, the man aspiring to God, and the horizontal line of the heart which simply unites the whole mankind as being the body of God, as being a divine reality. And in that way, Jesus adds this, many uh, of the Jewish uh, authorities of the day, they would just limit themselves to the first law. And therefore, they would be able to be cruel to other people, they would be able to put down other people, they would be able to treat some people like outcasts and sh nobodies and subhumans and whatever. It's because there is no love for the others. Even if you profess to have love for God, if you don't have love for the others, you understood only half of the message. That is why Jesus harmoniously completes this, and he actually says, the whole law and all the prophets, they hang on these two issues, love for God and love for the others. If you have only love for the others and you have no love for God, you are incomplete and you are a prisoner in Maya and you don't understand liberation and transcendence. And if you love only God and you don't love reality, then you are an escapist and <coughs> a kind of uh, person who has an incomplete view of spirituality. Therefore, this is the symbol of the both realities of the cross, the vertical and the horizontal. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Because, of course, they would never admit that he was the Messiah. They said, yeah, you a stupid carpenter from Nazareth, you are the Messiah. Why aren't you walking on the clouds? Why aren't you just killing all the Romans with a click of your hand and make us free? Why don't you make us all healthy and rich and ruling the earth and whatever else because you are supposed to be the Messiah. They expect from the Messiah some abominable things actually. They expect from the Messiah some things which are completely unspiritual and which are dictated by their wishful thinking because they are egoists and they expect that Messiah is going to satisfy their ego and their desires. And therefore Jesus says this Messiah which I am and you cannot see, I am standing here in front of you and you still wait for the Messiah who has come, it's just in front of you. Who is him? He asks them, what opinion do you have about this hypothetical Messiah of yours? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, 
but like in being enlightened, being in a state of superconsciousness, being inspired by God, as David was supposed to be when he composed the Psalms and others, calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions. Basically, Jesus demonstrates them that even theologically and intellectually, he can squash them anytime because he has such an intelligence that can, he can immediately connect things from the scriptures and he can play with the scriptures and catch the flaw immediately. For such a clear mind, which sees the theology and the scriptures from above, in a state of clairvoyance from Ajna, where knowledge is simultaneous, this man, Jesus, has a completely simultaneous knowledge of their scriptures, and as twisted as they are, he can always see the flaw. He will always find a paragraph in one of the prophets, he will always bring something up and show them, see, this system that you try to build with your mind isn't complete, isn't coherent, because it can never be, the mind can never build something 100% coherent. There will always be cracks, there will always be logical things which don't fit. And if you try to take me by the logic, I can anytime dismantle your system, showing you that I can say that black is white and white is black, and I can argue on anything. Uh, basically, great spiritual teachers like Rajneesh and others, they did just the same. They did a whole argument one day and demonstrated one thing, and the next day they demonstrated the opposite of it. And basically they said, with words, you can demonstrate both one thing and the opposite of it. That's the problem with words. That you can always twist them and words, because the mind is limited and imperfect. Language is limited and imperfect. Therefore, if you link, if you, if you attach too much to the letter, you forget the spirit. It's never alive. You are attaching so much to the letter. Here I am, more smart than you, more educated than you, more clairvoyant than you, with a huge mental capacity being a divine being, and I can twist you on my little finger and show you that your theology, I can simply make fun of it every time. Every time you try to catch me or whatever, I am one step ahead of you and I can show you that this system is just a caricature ultimately. Because from a level, everything is false. Everything you try to say about the universal truth is false. We are just having some guidelines. We are having some rough guidelines which guide us to keep our enthusiasm, to keep our practice going. But if you try to know the truth of God through words, you are a fool, because the truth of God cannot be expressed through words, so nobody should be attached too much to the details and millimeters, millimeter, millimetric things of the words. It doesn't work that way. And therefore, here is Jesus, He's, they try to catch him two, three times with things about the tax to the Caesar, the marriage, and to whom the woman will belong, he is provoking them back, asking about the Messiah, and basically he is showing them that you are not my peers intellectually. That means I can play havoc of your system, I can just put down any logical thing in your system, because I have uh, an understanding from above of all these. That is why 
here he basically kind of finished with them. Remember, he is in Jerusalem. He is very close to kick the bucket. He is very close to be uh, persecuted. And basically, day by day, he puts them in their own way. He uses even this tough policy in which, with the risk of provoking them, he shows them what they are. And now he comes with a long paragraph, which is really, really tough, where he attacks frontally the famous seven woes, where he simply blames them for their falsity and so on. And of course, this is the last drop which drives them berserk. Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries, phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Here we could comment a lot, because you see here Jesus is preaching indeed a wonderful model of society, a free wonderful model of the society, and there are a lot of collateral implications of this statement. He says, do not call anyone father, because your father is in heaven. That's exactly the discovery of St. Francis of Assisi in uh, his famous sermon, when he suddenly says to his father, he gets naked, he gives all his clothes to his father, and he says, from today I am not your son anymore, there are no more fathers and no more sons, there are no more this and that, there is only love, there is only eternity, there is only forgiveness, and then he goes naked and starts a new life. Basically, Francis of Assisi comes to the same painful thing. He tells to his father, from today I discovered who my real father is, and you are not my father anymore. You are my father biologically, but that doesn't mean much, because in spirit there is something else. And therefore, basically, this is a very tough thing. It would involve a society in which children should not call their father father, but should use the name father only for God, only for the divine, because it is like reserved for that. That would, of course, mean the end of a lot of attachments. That means no more family, no more of these things. Like from the early youth, you are being taught, be free. Your family is just a casual thing, is just a circumstantial thing, but actually your real family is God. You are a member of humanity, somebody happens to be your father and mother in this life, but actually your true source of existence is God, is the divine. Therefore there are many beautiful things collateral like this, but let's see the essence of this message of woe, where, as you can see, Jesus advises people not to listen to the rabbis, 
to see them that they are hypocrites and so on, and basically to preach, he preaches another model of society. <clears throat> Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah, that of course is God, and basically himself, he says that the ultimate teaching nature is the divine nature. Human beings are just teachers with a warrant, they are teachers temporary, they carry a message, but ultimately the teaching comes from the, from the universal spirit, and that's indeed the teacher. The greatest among you will be your servant. He said that before and demonstrated it, and again he comes with this model. He is horrified by the fact that people have transformed religion and spirituality in a business of authority, of ego trip, position, the best seat in the synagogue, the best thing of this, the best of that, it's basically all for obtaining advantages, name, fame, and things like this. And he says, wait a second, if you do spirituality like this, then it becomes just an inflation of your ego, and it becomes perdition. For whoever exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This statement is wonderful again. He says it at some other time, that the first shall be the last, the last shall be the first. He says at other times, here he formulates it beautifully. Whoever exalts himself shall be humble, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Meditate on this. It's a very, very important statement. We all the time try to exalt ourselves. Very few people try to humble themselves. Therefore, Jesus says, those who exalt themselves and puff themselves up and push themselves forward, they shall be humbled. After yin, there comes yang, and after yang, there comes yin. After a hill, there comes a valley, and after a valley, there comes a hill. Nothing lasts forever, and as soon as you push the pendulum one side, it will swing the other side as well, sooner or later. And that is why Jesus here gives us another model. It is much better to humble yourself so that God shall exalt you, than you shall puff yourself up, and God shall clap you on your head and humble you ultimately. That is why here you can see the model in Jesus himself. Jesus ultimately does not try to demonstrate anything, does not show his divine nature or power. He humbles himself and he allows some assholes to condemn him unjustly and then God fulfills the promise. Jesus humbles himself and God exalts him and makes him king, makes him everything makes him Messiah and Christ and whatever. And all those who puff themselves up, they eventually bite the dust, they eventually become much less than that. This is a formidable lesson, and that is why many great yogis, Yogananda and Ramakrishna and others, they prefer to be very humble. Instead of puffing themselves up, they all the time try to run away from honors, to stay humble, to live a simple life, because they realize, if you try to puff yourself up, then you will get the lesson of humbleness. For example, there have been modern teachers who push themselves a little bit more, like Gurdjieff pushed himself a little bit more, Krishnamurti pushed himself a little bit more, 
Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh pushed, pushed himself a little bit more and this kind of people, all of them, they ultimately had to endure some form of humbling while, for example, Ramakrishna, who was like a humble Bengali peasant all his life, was exalted to a position as a luminary of Indian history until now. That is why Jesus says, eventually you do more for mankind and you, it's much better for yourself if you humble yourself. Those people who like the Pharisees and the rabbis push themselves forward like, look, I am a teacher, listen to me. Basically they reserve to themselves a lesson from God which will serve them some form of humiliation, some form of humbleness in the end. Never forget this lesson. Should any one of you become famous and start spreading things, find a way to be humble because if you lose that lesson and you start flying high and showing off, you will bite the dust. Jesus says it very clearly. Whoever raises himself, whoever exalts himself, will be humbled. And therefore, it is a very much more wise way to humble yourself, awaiting for the divine consciousness to exalt you when your time comes. <coughs> and now he starts with the seven woes, frontal attack. Woe to you, teachers of law, of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. This is because the Pharisees of that time, they closed down all the yoga, they closed down all the spiritual practice, they made a lot of limitations, there were a lot of rules like even the elements of Kabbalah which existed at the time of Jesus. They are very secret, they are not for everybody, women can, couldn't have them. Men couldn't have them if they were not agreed. You had to be more than 40 years old. And then, of course, in that time, 40 years old was quite old because the average of life was much shorter than today. And because of this, people at 40 years were already pretty old. And therefore, they were kind of dead already. No enthusiasm, no ojas, no aspiration. They were just kind of mechanically learning Kabbalah. And basically, their task was to keep it alive. But my goodness, nobody should dare to be original, change something, be creative. It's like taking safety, that thing will stay hammered and nailed away like this they were. And in this way, Jesus says, that's the shit, because you have been given the spiritual rules, and theoretically at least you could have reached enlightenment. But because you are such greedy assholes and such proud jerks, you don't reach the kingdom of heaven, and at the same time you make such a stiff system that you don't even allow the young seekers of truth that at least they should reach it. At least if you screwed up, why do you prevent others? Why do you make this impossible system in which you preach this dead truth and so on? Jesus considers that very guilty because he says the fact that you don't reach is your problem. If you are stupid, you are stupid and you don't reach. But if you prohibit to others to reach, then you are diabolic. This is a purely diabolic thing that you don't allow other people to reach what they wish to reach. And therefore, Jesus throws this woe at them that you are, they are not allowing people. It's the same in religion today. All kind of Gnostic things in Christianity, all kind of practical things, 
and so on. Many of them are prohibited and many of them are not there. And if you are a young seeker in modern Christianity and you try to do yoga and meditation and you speak about this or that, you might get in conflict with the church who will say, no, no, you can't do that, you are a heretic, it's forbidden, you can't do this and that, sabotage you in all kinds of ways, which shows that the modern priests and the modern church very much have become exactly as the hypocrites of those times, exactly as the Pharisees and Sadducees and those of that time, teachers of the law and the others. Today's priesthood, today's church authorities are just falling in the same inevitable mistake of becoming fake, of pretending that they hold the spiritual truth, while that spiritual truth is not alive. It's according to those rules, nobody really reaches anything. They don't reach it, but they are envious. They don't allow others to reach either. This is the policy of the devil, the great mystics of Christianity. They said that that's why the devil all the time tries to ruin the human soul, because the devil has lost the paradise, the, left, the devil has been cast out of God's grace. The devil lives in hell and lives in agony. And the devil is therefore envious that you still have a chance to make it to paradise. And therefore the devil, out of pure envy, is simply trying to make that if he doesn't reach, then you shall not reach as well. It's basically a way, if I'm falling, let everybody fall with me in the fire of hell. And therefore, this kind of envy, that if I don't make it, nobody should make it, this is pure devilish thing. This is purely the policy of Satan. And therefore, Jesus is adamantly angry at these people who distort the spirituality and who, because of a devil-like anger, envy, more, they don't want to let others prosper spiritually. Remember, this is one of the ugliest things possible, and this is purely, this is not even demonic, this is directly satanic and diabolic. Therefore, uh, it's the first woe here. Woe to you, he keeps on, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. He calls them no more and no less sons of hell. And he says, you go around to convert like Christians today are doing mission and missionarism. For centuries they have sent missionaries all over the world to make people Christian. And when they made people Christian, what did they give them? They gave them rules and regulations by which they did not become divine, but by which other people became more stiff more demonic, more this or that. So basically he said, you make efforts to convert people, but it's like you attract them to hell. You are missionaries of hell because you go and convert people and make them twice as much son of hell as you are. And with this, he blames them and he, he throws a terrible woe at them. As you can see, Jesus is not at all a diplomat. He knows the truth and he simply rubs the truth in their face. He puts their nose in the muck big time because he has no time to deal with small things. He simply is there to tell them God's truth. Woe to you blind guide! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. He simply attacks them by some of their statements which are symbolic of a greater thing that these people don't see the essence 
they are all the time uh, dabbling in minor things, in ridiculous things. So he comments on a statement, which is a belonging to those days, that if one swears like this, it's okay. If one doesn't swear like this, it's okay. What matters? And he, throws, he shows them by this, you illustrate the way you think. This way betrays you. It shows where you put your emphasis and what is important for you. And it shows that you are blind. That's the conclusion. The fact that you don't see, and when you don't see, how can you dare to guide others when, when you yourselves are blind? He says, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes that gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, because people were bringing sacrifices on the altar at those days, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Basically, he makes them blind. He says, see, you have forgotten the common sense and therefore you are blind, guys. How do you dare to proclaim yourself that you see when you actually don't see? Look, daily things. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guys, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Basically, he says, you are just attached to like making donations of dill, mint, cumin, spices, whatever, but you have not promoted the spirit of the law. Look at it. In Christianity today, it's the same. It's rules and regulations. You can do this, you cannot do that. You should do this, you should not do that. And there are things like if you are a tantric, then if you are in a very fundamentalistic place, your priest is going to tell you, oh, Tantra is a diabolic thing. Sex, you know, we don't admit fornication in the church. This Tantra is like a license to lewdness and uh, bad things and so on. And therefore they will blame you because you are interested in sex, when sex ultimately is a divine creation. But, for example, nobody complains that you are egoistic. If you are an egoistic, proud asshole, if you are the Don Corleone of the Mafia and you ooze with ego, but you pay your due and you respect the priests or whatever, then they say you are good. It's kind of the ego should be much more an enemy than sex, for example, because ego is much more demonic than sex in its nature. And yet, the values are reversed. Some formal things are kept loud, and some of the real problematic issues, some of the real painful issues, are just treated as secondary. As he says here so metaphorically, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. It's like, don't pay attention to big things, but you are pay attention, paying attention to all kinds of small formalities. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside also will be clean. This echoes mysteriously and wonderfully with the view of the Kriya Yogas that it is more important to clean yourself inside than outside. Like outside is more like a ritual aspect, inside it is touching your moods and mind, it is touching your energy and soul. And therefore, Jesus says, and don't forget that Jesus was a great healer and he was mastering many methods of healing, the gospel of truth even says, describes that Jesus was using methods like Shanka Prakshalana and things like this. So basically he was not all the time just snapping fingers. Sometimes he was trying to help people with methods which were simple and which used their goodwill and so on. We read often that Jesus healed and healed and healed. But some of the apocryphal Gospels, some of the Gnostic Gospels, they tell us that actually much of this healing he did by some kind of yogic, ayurvedic, alternative methods of healing at which he was very good. And this man who is so proficient in healing, he says first clean the cup inside and then the outside will also be clean. This is exactly like in Kriya Yoga, it fits so very well and also it is a woe to these people who don't see the essence. They wash their hands but their soul is dirty. Jesus says, if you go as a priest, these people are priests or whatever they are, rabbis, teachers of the law. <coughs> he says, if you wash your hands and you go with a dirty soul in front of the altar, isn't that much worse than if you had your hands dirty but you would be pure as driven snow? Isn't the internal one which matters? It is exactly what Ramakrishna said in a shocking way. Ramakrishna, the sattvic Hindu, fundamentalist and so on, says if one person eats clean food but is dirty in the heart, that clean food will become as poisonous as his heart. And if somebody has a clean heart and eats dirty food, that food will be purified through the gift of his heart and become sattvic. Basically, he gives the same prevalence. It's not the outside, it's the inside. Clean your soul, be sincere in your soul, and that makes the spiritual life. And he, Jesus, reproaches to the Pharisees and teachers of the law that they are no longer sincere. He all the time calls them hypocrites. It's all hypocrisy, and I'm not going to put up with this hypocrisy. He is simply exposing it mercilessly. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The implication is so very clear, it just adds to it, I don't need to comment that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. This is because the Jews, unfortunately, had a very painful tradition of killing prophets. It, was, it is not Jesus who was killed first. Jesus is the utmost of those which was killed, the ultimate and the acme, he being even more than a prophet. Not only John the Baptist was murdered, 
but the whole line of prophets before Zechariah, and I don't know who some names are mentioned here, I'm not so good in the history of the Old Testament, many, many have been put to death. It's exactly like Socrates in Greece. They were disturbing people. They told the truth and they showed people how hypocrites they are and how fake they are. And such people, either you have to do what they say, or if not, you have to kill them because they are a thorn in the eye. They are a pain in the neck. And unfortunately, the Jewish establishment being so manipulistic and being run by some, some people who are very without scruples, they chose the easy solution. Kill the stupid prophet because he is spoiling our peace. And therefore, unfortunately, there was a big history of killing prophets. This was not the beginning of it. It's like the story with the vineyard when the master sent servants and the people keep beating them up and murdering them, what we read last time. And therefore, Jesus says, yeah, people of today say we wouldn't have done such a thing. It's exactly like many Christian authorities today. They lament and they say, ah, if we would have been there, we would have never crucified a man like Jesus. We would have recognized him who he was. That's a wishful thinking. If Jesus comes today, the authorities of the church are going to crucify, crucify him very quickly, probably even more quickly than the Jews did in their time, because it's the same shit all over again. Nobody wants to acknowledge the truth when they see it. The spiritual truth can sometimes be very disturbing, and people take it very personal like this. And in this way, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, people, they try, they are hypocrites, and they say, uh, we, they decor now, you, when they are dead, the prophets, you make them beautiful mausoleums and tombs, and you decorate them, and you say, what a pity that they killed Jesus. What a pity that they killed John the Baptist. What a pity that they killed Zechariah, or we wouldn't have done such a thing. And Jesus says, it's on the contrary, you are a bunch of hypocrites, and you are just about to do the same thing. It's same old, same old, nothing new under the sun. <coughs> so, he says, by saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. He simply warns them, be careful, you say, we are the descendants of those who killed the prophets. You are about to do the same thing. Fill up the measure of that, which simply means you are not far from doing the same thing. You snakes, you brood of vipers, he becomes pretty graphic here. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them... Here he talks like God. He suddenly says, I am sending you prophets and wise men. He suddenly is in the complete trip. Now he is God already and he speaks with the voice of God. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Basically, Jesus is frightening them no more and no less that the shit will hit the fan in a generation time, which more or less it did.
because after the events happened that Jesus was crucified, that's supposed to have happened in the year 33 or 34 AD, <coughs> and then already in the year 60 or 70, I don't remember completely, in the time of one of the Roman emperors, the temple was demolished, Jerusalem was sacked, and the Israeli nation was basically scattered in the four winds. And basically Jesus tells them, because you are denying constantly the divine reality, you have to learn the Kali way. You have to learn by flogging, because you are being sent prophets and wise men and teachers, and you are being sent even the Messiah, and you treat him like shit. And basically this shows that you don't know how to appreciate a divine gift, and therefore this grace is going to be temporarily taken away from you, so that you should see the bitter side of things. <clears throat> and basically, he describes exactly what's going to happen, what has happened in history, and what will happen to the first Christians, who indeed will be flogged in synagogues, crucified, and whatever. He describes just the sad side of human nature. Remember, it's not only the Jews who did that. Every religion did that to their predecessors and to the new ones who came depending on the temperament of people. Some nations are more tolerant and not so manipuristic, some nations are more manipuristic and more vehement. But making a small differences of temperament, that's a common thing which happens in history, and uh, you can see it. It has happened in so many ways. And he says, quoting from a prophet, from the Psalms or whatever, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone that those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gather her, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Basically, Jesus here threatens with one of the things which is indeed one of the great karmic things. He says it's simply the law of history. Exactly as nations are having ascent and decline, there are moments where some nations like the Greeks determined all the European culture and history and gave the roots of it. And today, what is so much left of the Greek culture? Not so much. It is kind of a decadent culture which is, does not have an essential influence on the world culture or on the world spirituality. Exactly in the same way where cultures come up and down like the Roman Empire believed itself to be the harbinger of civilization and of culture and of codes of law and schooling and aqueducts and God knows what they thought and everybody else were just barbarians and the Romans were the civilized ones, and what are the Romans today? Italy is just a small country which has its own problems and its limitations, and it is far from being a factor in influencing the culture or the history of the world. It's not one of the major players in the world's spirituality, power, culture, or everything today. And therefore there is ascent and decline, and Jesus here predicts in this a sad decline to some spirituality in the Jewish environment, telling them, if you kill the prophet, 
then you are going to see the way it is without them. It is what I keep saying when I lament what is happening today in places like India, where Indian families kill the female babies. They kill the female fetuses. I don't know how such a spiritual nation that India used to be can do such a horrendous thing that generations of families abort female fetuses programmatically, deliberately. How they don't realize that that constitutes an offense to the Shakti nature and basically that it cannot go forever unpunished. That a country which does that, the Chinese do more or less the same thing but for different reasons, that a country which does that reserves to itself a horrifying future that the laws of karma will hit them sooner or later in terrible ways. And that is why this woe which Jesus says is a sad warning in which Jesus says you don't see it coming, do you? Don't, you don't see that it's impossible to kill Zechariah and to kill John the Baptist and eventually they killed even him. But okay, let's say Jesus said, I forgive them all. But it's impossible in the eye of God to kill prophets like this and in the end to get away with it and to be just like this. There is a lesson to it. It means like you, de you demonstrate a real demonic, egoistic spirit where you refuse any form of guidance, where you refuse any form of humbleness and you are full of an arrogance which is of a Luciferian nature. And therefore, then you have to learn the pain. Then you have to learn the lesson, the hard lesson. Therefore, uh, here Jesus is unfortunately accusing the old Jewish religion at that time. It is true that later in time the Jewish religion evolved. There are many, many things which developed thousand years later, like many of the Kabbalistic writings which appeared in the year 700, 800, many of the literature like the book of the Zohar and many, many other things, some real mysticism and some of the Hasidim mysticism and some of the things of the heart and others, they appeared later and they represent a regeneration of this Jewish spirit in some way because the way it was practiced at the time when Jesus spoke to those people, it was like lost, it was like dead, it was like hypocrite, it was like dry and they had in front of them the men sent by God, the spirit sent by God to save them, to enlighten them, to refresh them, to redeem them and they refuse bluntly this thing and they even kill it. Many people believe and this was one of the dogmas of the church and it was one of the Christian church and it was one of the painful things that somehow this means that the Jews made themselves guilty of killing Jesus and so on. The way Jesus puts it all the time and the way you are going to hear it through his own words, Jesus does not condemn them. He decries them. He simply says, you don't know what you are doing. That means I, as a Bodhisattva, as a Buddha, as a compassionate being, I can forgive you. You are killing me. What is my body and what is my life when I am eternal and God can lift me to heaven? You can't kill me anyhow and therefore why should I have a problem with the thing that you try to kill me or you are bad to me. You don't understand me and I am a great divine being. I am the divine spirit and as such I am not uh, wondering of that. But I am decrying for you. It's not that the death of Jesus 
created the karma. Many people have come with this theory that perhaps the Jewish nation has had a bit of a load this karma along history because among others they had to bear on their shoulders the karma of having killed Jesus. Wait a second. Jesus did not leave any karma around him. If Jesus wouldn't have forgiven people, then indeed they would have had that karma. But Jesus forgave even the Roman soldiers who crucified him, physically speaking, literally speaking. That is why Jesus did not leave any karma, like saying, okay, all those Jews who survived me, you shall pay, I want you to bite the dust because you crucified me and so on. No, he says, I for one forgive everybody. He says, God forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. It's kind of these people are blind and they cannot see who I am. And of course, I don't want to brag and show them who I am. It's their problem that they don't see who I am. But Jesus decried this degree of ignorance and says, if you kept on doing this to prophets and prophets, this is above my head. It's not a karma. It's the fact that your ego must be diminished. It's the fact that you have to be whipped to diminish your arrogance, to diminish your pride, because you have the pride of the demons. You don't want to listen to anybody. You are so arrogantly proud that prophets over prophets come to you and you kill them. Then what to do with such people? You have to grind them a little bit. You have to whip them a little bit. A bit of spanking will do them good. And basically he says, it's not because of me. That means I have forgiven you. You have killed me. There is nothing because of that. That is why the great yogis, when Yogananda looked at this and so on, they did not see that the Jewish soul has a bad karma because they killed Jesus. Because Jesus would not have accepted to give a bad karma to somebody because he did something. It means like he came and the result of his life was that he loaded some poor ignorant people with a guilt which was disproportionately great compared to their level of ignorance. Jesus would not have done that to go out of this planet and to live a whole culture, a whole nation loaded with such a horrendous sin. That is why it's obvious that in the policy of compassion it appears that Jesus did not allow such negative karma to be poured on anybody. He freely forgave. But unfortunately, he, won he warns them. He says, this is above my head and it is, it is beyond me and beyond you. It's simply a matter of temperament. It's your relationship to the universe. You won't learn. You kill the messengers of God. And therefore, he says, I, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He, in another place, the statement is presented in another way. He says, You shall not see me again until you learn to cry. Basically, it's a matter of learning the lesson of humbleness. While some nations have a kind of spontaneous humbleness, in some nations you find a lot of pride and arrogance. Don't think that only the Jewish nation is proud and arrogant because of having a lot of Manipura. You find a lot of Manipura even in the Tibetan lore, but okay, let's say that the Tibetans were so spiritual that they compensated some of it. But you find a lot of arrogance and pride in the Japanese environment as well. You find a lot of arrogance and pride in the Anglo-Saxon environment, especially the British type of environment. You find a lot of arrogance and pride in other Manipuristic environments on this planet, and therefore they are not exempt of the same thing. 
they may receive a prophet or whatever and because of arrogance they kill it or they refuse it and then it's the same thing sooner or later they have to learn the lesson of humbleness how do you learn the lesson of humbleness either you learn it willingly like I wish to be more humble I would like to learn humbleness I would like to bend my knees in front of God and I would like to be loving and humble because humbleness as Gandhi said, is the solid foundation of all virtues. But if I refuse to do it, like this is my yoga, to become more humble, to open my heart, but if I don't want to do it, then Kali can do it for me. Only that Kali will do it by the stick. That means Kali can drive me there, she can get me humble, but she will get me humble by the stick, by the force. She will simply squash me until I reach there. That's why Jesus says in another alternative of this, you shall not see me before you learn to cry. Basically, many people can ask historically, and probably it's one of the main questions which the Jewish people ask themselves, have we become humble after 2,000 years of going through the meat grinder, or still we have to go a bit through it, because we are not yet as humble as we should be. And in that way, the question is a matter of development of the soul, of development of the heart. Remember that often I have seen cases, I remember once I was analyzing the case of a human community, it had nothing to do with the Jewish community, I was analyzing the case of a human community which was on earth, like a country, which was subjected to very difficult things, like you can say that the Russians have been subjected 70 years to the horrors of communism and whatever, that others and others have been subjected to others and other things. And spiritual masters have been asked, how do you see this? Why does it happen? And they simply said, it's somehow for opening the heart of those places of the earth, because people are demonic and arrogant, and they will not learn, learn humbleness. Only a minority of people come to yoga or to some spiritual path, and they are willing to learn humbleness out of their own accord, because they realize that that's what their heart needs. But the other people don't want to learn it, and therefore sometimes the only chance Kali has is to purify things through pain, to purify things through wars, revolutions, earthquakes, tornadoes, cataclysms, and so on, which simply teach people the painful lesson of detachment, the painful lesson of humbleness, the painful lesson of trusting in the divine consciousness, and all the others, because people would not learn it by themselves. And that is why here you have indeed a complicated historical thing, where Jesus is basically outlining a mechanism that if you don't evolve by yourself, you are going to be pushed in evolution by forces which are beyond you. Surely, this thing now which I mentioned, and at some point later it becomes even more explicit, so that's why I avoid now going the full time in it, because it will come again. This issue, which addresses this very politically incorrect, critical thing with uh, the Jewish nation and things, if there is a karma for Jesus or not, and I say there isn't a karma for Jesus because Jesus did not allow to live a karma for that thing which has happened in history. He acted by the laws of compassion and forgiveness. 
but nevertheless they illustrate something which is general because now people are attached to the fact uh, those of you who in this life are born in Israel or are born as Jews, you are attached to the idea. But don't forget, some of you in your previous life you have been born in Tibet. Then you simply didn't have any connection with this nation or its current problems. The problems of a nation are like a shell which mix and don't mix with the problems of the individual. The individual is beyond the nation. Those of you who are today born as Israelites, maybe in your previous life you have been French, and then, and in your next life you are going to be Brazilians or whatever. It doesn't matter in that way. It's a temporary thing, which means if at some time I'm having a certain arousing of my chakras, a certain temperament, a certain karma, and if I fit there, Somehow the laws of karma, they send me in this life to be there. And then I become a member of this community, exactly as I can be today born as a son of Romania, but at the same time I can as well feel as belonging to Tibet or whatever. So in that way, this is what I'm trying to say. We don't belong to this, never take it personally, because very often people tend to take it personally. And uh, especially when it comes to such delicate political issues, people tend to take it double personally. Remember, your destiny as a person is not because of your parents, not because of your city, not because of your country, because it would be unfair that somebody should pay karma for their mother, or unless you ask for it. If you are a bodhisattva and take it over yourself, that's something else, but that's one in a million. We are not talking about that. We are talking about average case. And in the average case, therefore, the fact that I am enduring some karma right now, this is my personal thing. This is something which I have created for myself in my previous life. Sometimes there are coincidences, like for example an airplane crashes and there are 200 people in that airplane. And then people say, well, why were all these people punished to crush in this airplane? No! Each and every one of them had the karma to die violently, like in an airplane crash, and the miraculous hand of karma masterly brought them to book the same airplane in the same day, and to be all of them were ripe for it. Each and every one of them got it. You, not even 199 of them had it, and then the 200th of them was the innocent victim who happened to be there by accident. There is no accident when you crash with a plane. It is meant to happen. There are situations, some fewer rare situations, when things happen and people escaped miraculously. A plane crashed, 199 people died, and the 200th was found among the debris without a scratch. Kind of, it's a bloody miracle, you know. How can it happen? I remember in 1977 we had a tragic earthquake in Bucharest where thousands of people died under crumbling buildings and so on. And there were absolutely incredible things. One guy in the middle of the earthquake, he was taking a bath in a bathtub. So he was in the water washing himself. The earthquake started. 
then this guy simply slid with the bathtub on the debris. The building crumbled under him and he slid on it like with a sledge on a slope. And he found himself in the middle of the boulevard, naked in the bathtub, while everybody in his building was dead and crushed. The guy simply found himself naked, but alive, unscratched, unharmed, in the middle of the street. That's why when you have to get away with it, you get away with it whatever the odds because the angels can take you on the wing and you will escape. And that is why, exactly as in an airplane, the miracle of karma has gathered everybody in that airplane who is ripe for kicking the bucket that day. Exactly in the same way, people are born in France or in Israel or in this or in that according to some laws of karma which require that you don't belong to any nation. One life Tibetan, one life Brazilian, one life this and that. But right now, you are here in this situation for a purpose, for learning a certain lesson, for consuming a certain karma, for being the right person in the right place, participating to some circumstances where you are supposed to participate. And that is why, remember that this bigger aggregate, like we have the destiny of a town or whatever, they are not to be taken personally, because many people take, identify with their community and they take it personally. I want to give you an, another example where you can see the mixture of this. In Romania, there is an example of a small town which used actually to be the residential town of the kings in the south of Romania. It was the royal court. And this town, which was pretty important in Wallachia, in the south of Romania, this was basically the capital, the main city. And of course, since it was the main city in 1300 and something, by now it should have been a megapolis. It should have been the bigger thing. But something has happened in history. That something is that one of the great religious authorities, I don't remember if this guy is credited with being a saint or whatever, he at some time got pissed off. People did some, a lot of injustice, a lot of demonic things, a lot of ugly things, and this guy who was a very fiery temperament, he went in, he was a bishop or whatever, he took on his garments, his ritual things, he served the Mass, and in the middle of the Mass, when the power of God was upon him, he went into the doorway of the church and he cursed the city. He cursed the city that that city should never grow up more than it was, that it should be stranded at what it was. And believe it or not, in 700 years, that city never grew. It still has 13,000 people, inhabitants or whatever, and it has remained a small dot on the map of Romania. A lot of other cities developed, became industrial, the capital moved, everything moved, culture moved, religion moved. That city remained a speck on the map because some bishop cursed it in 1300s or whatever. Therefore, it's funny, if you are born in that city and things don't work, it's kind of, you say, well, you know, it's kind of hard to, but it, there is a karma which makes that you are born in that city and you share it. It's not that you are paying for the karma of the town. The town has its own karma as an egregore, as a collective soul, and you are an independent part of that. For example, if you start practicing yoga and you start activating your Ajna Chakra and you start seeing the karma and the karmic patterns and you start becoming lucid, independent, powerful, suddenly you can say, 
the heck with Trgovishtev or whatever it's called. I'm moving out from here. I don't want to be a part of this community. I don't want to share this kind of thing. That means as long as I was ignorant, I was just like a worm swarming in this environment. It was my karma to live here and unconsciously and unwillingly to be part of this curse or whatever it is. But now that I'm independent, I can as well move to Paris and live my life in a totally different way and forget about this little city and its problems altogether. Or, if I am powerful enough to lift that curse or to bring a blessing on the city or whatever, surely I can do that, but that is much more difficult to uh, contemplate. And therefore, this is what I say. Don't take it personally. These things have to be judged in a personal, impersonal way. I'm a person who has a certain karma, a certain destiny, and the different human communities, the different human things, they also have a karma of their own, according to the geographical area, to the predominant chakras, to the history, to the predominant type of resonance, and so on. Here, we have encountered a very interesting teaching of Jesus, concerning this and a few fundamental issues. We'll stop here because it's already midnight and my voice is going down simply because of all these lectures. Next week we'll continue. I don't know if two lectures or one. It's true we missed a lot of lectures of Jesus and I will try at least to finish the Gospel of Matthew in this season. The Gospel of Matthew according to this edition here just so that I calculate at the same time with you has 27 paragraphs and it ends at page 57 here which now we are about to enter into the paragraph number 25 24 so we are at page 45, 57, 12 pages. Maybe we can cover them in a couple of lectures. So maybe next week we'll do two of this. If any one of you wants that on the contrary, on Tuesday, we should have another lecture on one of the other themes, or those of you who are in the second month and are for the first time in this group, and you have a lot of additional questions and other uh, itches, other things itching you, then of course we can postpone it and make another intermediary lecture on some other of the themes which are urgent for you and postpone this one. So remember, I'm also waiting for some feedback from you. If all of you agree with it and I don't get any feedback, you might hear that next week I choose to do two Jesus lectures, both Tuesday and Thursday, because we'd like, when we finish this season of teaching, to finish this analysis in a yogic way of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's see if we have any final comments, problems, issues, after which, being so late, let us part. I have a question. Uh, is there a possibility that uh, there's a prophet in the 20th century that we missed? Uh, anyone out there maybe that was a prophet that, similar to the ones in the Bible, who were persecuted? Uh, it's a difficult issue. Uh, one like Jesus would say, the tree is known by the fruits, and nobody lights a candle and hides it under a pot, as Jesus says. So basically, if there would, be, when there is a big prophet, you hear something, it moves something. Like Shivananda lived, 
and many people who are interested in spirituality know who Shivananda is because he was a hell of a guy. He made a lot of noise and he made a lot of light and he was a very spiritual person. And so did Aurobindo and so did some of the great yogis who reached enlightenment. So if only in India I can list for you quickly ten names of enlightened beings, why shouldn't there have been others in other places of the earth? Because India does not hold the monopoly of enlightened beings. That is why I can any time fully accept that there have been saints and mystics who blessed different parts of the earth. Surely some of them entrusted by God with more fundamental missions, some of them very humble and modest, their mission was just a small thing to do something in their little corner there, in their little corner of the world. That is why, surely, I will agree to it, that they have been. Now, surely, it's true, there have been prophets who have simply shaped the history of the world. Such things, you know, they are seen. You see them. When Jesus came, in three years, he changed the history of the world. It's true that maybe you couldn't see it for 200 years. But then even after 200 years, the world was still changing because of Jesus and what he did. So in that way, people like Jesus, people like Ramakrishna and Shankaracharya, people like the Prophet Muhammad and so many others, of course, they changed major things in the world. And those are people entrusted with greater missions in spirituality. So no doubt that that is possible. And remember that we know in spirituality, surely, of examples of people who are great spiritual beings and who live anonymously, and we don't even know their names. We just know that there was a man or a woman who was enlightened and walked on water and flew through the air and raised the dead, but that person, we don't even, the history doesn't even preserve their names. Only God knows who they are and what they did. So that's why the destiny of different great spirits is very different. Some of them are meant to remain anonymous, while some of them are hallowed by glory, as Jesus is a brilliant example of that. So yes, the history of mankind is full of divine influences, no doubt. If it weren't so, the history of this planet would be much more sad than it is. I remember, just now I remembered because I had forgotten this, and I wanted to say, I remember that people who dabble into these mysteries, conspiracies, and so on, they claim that in the time of Blaise Pascal in France, there existed a child born in 1500, 1600 and something, I don't remember now, who was obviously a super enlightened being, a great enlightened being, and this child has had a very, very strange destiny, some secret society or some people, they simply chased him mercilessly and exterminated him and whatever, just because this child was supposed to become a great spirit changing the history of mankind. And there are some witnesses you never heard. I never heard about that child before reading this. And when I read the historical testimonies, because this is history already, 300 years old or whatever, I was appalled because I never knew this and I, so there exists surely great spirits visiting this mankind for various reasons, surely. So there's a likelihood, since we're coming to the end of Kaliuga, there's a likelihood that we may see a prophet. I mean, is it, yes. do you think it's a greater likelihood? Yes, uh, it is a greater likelihood that in years of such turmoil, 
some absolutely astonishing things should be revealed also in the person of great prophets. I have the hope that great prophets will stand in the history of mankind and bless it. <laughs> but what guys, you both heard it and now you want to rerun or what? Yeah, even though we did the meditation before, I think I didn't really get it going after even though so. Okay. Let's Stop here. So I will let you know in time until the weekend.